Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Will, welcome to Inside Out. Thanks, Billy. I'm glad to be here, man. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. And let's get started here, man. You have certifications as a stockbroker, a flight instructor, a certified product manager, a technical trainer, a commercial pilot, a Microsoft certified systems engineer, a Cisco certified network associate, a certified professional behavioral analyst, and a forklift operator. And I know that's not all of it. There's so much more. That's just to name a few. So where did your love of learning come from? I don't know if I would categorize in with that particular list. I don't know if I would categorize it as the love of learning so much as being like a certification whore. <laughs> um, you know, I just, if there's like a, a badge I can get out of the thing. I mean, I'm, I've been a victim uh, slash perpetrator of gamification since before it was a thing. It's different than learning. I'm really good at uh, doing well on standardized tests, which is not the same thing as being really good at learning. Interesting. Okay, cool. First of all, applaud you for that because clearly you did whatever it took. Maybe you didn't learn everything, but you were able to pass the test. One of those things that stands out though, I know when your parents demanded that you, you're not the first person to not go to college. You went to college, but you demanded that you studied aviation. And I'm curious, one thing that stands out, and you've mentioned this before, is how business is not unlike flying an airplane. So why is that? Well, yes, I come from a long line of educated people and I didn't really want to go to school when I finished high school. I believe to this day that I graduated high school because when you graduate Austin High School, you don't come back to the property, right? And so it was, it was much more for the benefit of the staff. I was a, a handful. But when my parents said, look, you're going to school. This is just like what it is. I'm like, okay, well, it's going to cost as much as I can make it cost for you then. And then and at the time that was aviation. When I learned how to fly airplanes. And I just did it because I wanted to have fun and I thought it was cool. And, you know, and I did, and it was what I learned about me and the world and all sorts of things, flying airplanes was, was two things. The first thing I learned is that I didn't want to be a pilot when I grew up. I didn't want to like drive people here and there, but much more important than that. What I learned is I learned about the far reaching consequences of trivial acts, little teeny decisions if I do a little thing in an airplane, it's going to affect what happens to the airplane a mile from here, 10 miles from here, a thousand feet up, a thousand feet down. And the same thing happens in life. And so what you learn when you learn to fly airplanes is you learn a couple of things. You always need a plan for what you're going to do if something goes wrong. 80% of pilot training is what you do in an emergency. And you also learn 
that most of life is not particularly dangerous. Flying airplanes is not particularly dangerous at all. It is, however, particularly unforgiving of neglect and having a relationship. Not hard, but unforgiving of neglect, right? Crossing a busy street, not hard, but unforgiving of neglect, right? And so, so what piloting does is it teaches you how to pay attention. It teaches you how to appreciate that almost nothing is trivial. I love that. There's a few things flooding my brain as you're talking. One, you highlight this neglect in the business being unforgiving, much like a plane and flying a plane is unforgiving of neglect. And then you also talked about how when you're flying, the smallest little thing you do could impact what happens miles down the road. I mean, 1% off to a pilot is the difference between landing and crashing. And so I'm curious, how have you been able to apply that those theories, those concepts to business? Obviously, the success that you had at web.com and the subsequent success you've had in other businesses that you've started, as well as helping other business owners do what they need to do to realize their vision and what they say they want to accomplish. I'm curious, how do we focus on those little things in the right way so that we're not focused on trivial things, but on the right little things? That's a great question. I'll try to answer it with two stories, but I'll try to keep the stories quick because my big sister Kathleen always tells me that one story is just plenty. So there's a quick thing. Well, let me ask you this. You remember the miracle on the Hudson, Sully uh, landed an airplane, saved all hundred and something passengers. Of course. Yeah. Great story. Interesting fact there. He had 208 seconds from the time those birds flew through the engine until he hit the water. He had, or until the airplane like ended up back at sea level, he had 208 seconds to figure out exactly what to do. And so how many times do you suppose, before he landed that airplane on the Hudson River, how many times do you suppose he had landed an airplane on the Hudson River? <laughs> yes, that's a big fat zero. Yeah. Thought about it or did it? Well, did it. And most people will answer zero. But the fact of the matter is, is that at the time, by the time he reached those 208 seconds that changed everything for him and those people on board, he had gone to probably a place in Dallas called Flight Safety every six months and recertified in that aircraft. And recertification in that aircraft includes highly sophisticated simulator landings on water. And what they call that is ditching. He had ditched an airplane at least two times six months times 30 years before he ever got to those 208 seconds. And so what happened for Sully when that happened, you know, and I'm not trying to take anything away from the guy, right? I mean, gangster piloting that day, right? National hero. But what kicked in for him, and this happens for every pilot, what kicked in for him is muscle memory because 80% of pilot training is training for what to do in an emergency. Let's take it all the way back to learning how to fly a Cessna 172. Four out of five times when you take off, you push the throttle forward and you take off, your instructor is going to reach over and pull the throttle back when you get 500 feet off the ground. He says, all right, you just lost your engine. What are you going to do? And then you simulate a landing. You look and you do you know, gas, undercarriage, mixture, props, full forward, seat belts on. Gumps is what they call it. And that's the gumps check. And you ask any student pilot who's flown more than twice, they know gumps. And it's muscle memory. Now let's contrast that with like Harvard MBA school where I did not go. But I'm going to guess that everything I ever learned in college and everything you might learn in Harvard MBA school, most of it, maybe 80% of it 
is what to do in business when things go well. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have to like sit down and write things and review emails and study to figure out the last time things went well in business, just like expectedly well, right? Because every day, either I or somebody around me pulls the throttle back and says, all right, you just lost an engine. What are you going to do? You just lost an employee. What are you going to do? Global pandemic, Mercedes Benz. What are you going to do about delivering cars for the next goodness knows how many years? As business people, we don't study emergencies. We don't study failures the way the aviation industry and pilots do. And we should. I've had so many things go wrong. I would hang out with it. We sit around and game out. It's like, what would you do if the CTO of the business quit while you were on vacation? And me and a friend of mine talked about that while we were riding ATVs on Pismo Beach, which if you haven't done, you really should. But we like sat around one night and talked about all the things that we would do if like the CTO quit while I was on vacation. And a year later, he did. And I was. We had a plan for it. I called him up, Vive. Guess what? Damnedest thing. Remember Pismo? Yeah. Remember the CTO thing? Yeah. And he's like, no. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. I need you on an airplane now to go run this business while I get my ass home from Portugal. It happened, right? And that was just like an amazingly lucky story. But if you game out possible failures, if you think about what could go wrong and what is the gumps check that you need to do in your business, when it hits the fan, you're going to be a better leader, right? Because muscle memory. It's such a powerful insight and, and quite timely as a business owner. We've had a few little bumps in the road over the last couple of weeks. I mean, we thought maybe this could happen or that could happen, but this is now real world as opposed to being able to practice, think about and plan for an eventuality because it's never going to be clear sailing. It's never going to be smooth. There will always be some bump in the road. There will, there will always be some turbulence and the turbulence could get really, really rocky, really, really quick. So there's another thing that I think about and, and not to beat this one to death here, but what about checklists? When I read the checklist manifesto, it highlights the pilot. If you think about like a surgeon or you think about a pilot, they use checklists. What's your thought on that, man? Dude, I love a checklist. I absolutely love a checklist. Now, since we're beating the, the aircraft metaphor to death, if you look at an airplane, what you'll find is that the control panel matches the checklist. So what'll happen is you go like down the left side and you'll check a bunch of things and then you go over the right and set a bunch of switches and all of that. And then the checklist is ordered in the same uh, order as the controls, right? So there's really nice, uh, let's call it user interface or user experience between the checklist and the controls of the airplane. And again, I'm such a fan of how aviators do their thing because it's so freaking practical, right? If you ever want to read government regulations that make sense, read the federal aviation regulations. They make so much sense. It is astounding, right? It's like, well, why can't we do that for all the other? I don't know. I hate meetings. And weirdly, my job as a, a management consultant is to facilitate meetings. But the reason I facilitate meetings is because it's embarrassing and awful to watch it done poorly. I'll, I'll sit around and I'll think, I was like, this is this is what I imagine it would be like for like a porn star to watch normal people having sex. It's just like, it's like, oh, it's embarrassing for all of us. So I've built checklists for meetings. I've built checklists for building business plans. I've built checklists for onboarding new staff members, new employees, all everything I have. You can listen to a million people. I was listening to Mel Robbins, who's one of my heroes. I was listening to her and she Somebody asked, well, what do you do about this? And, you know, what's a, some question? And she talked about 
well, you got to figure out a way to get people on board really quickly into the organization and let them know who, what's important and what's not and where the thing is and who to talk to about this and all of that stuff. And I thought to myself, oh, I know what she's talking about. She's talking about what in my world is the 90-day onboarding plan. And what the 90-day onboarding plan is the vision, mission, values of the organization, the communication style of the person who's taking the job, the communication style of the people that they will be working with, their communication do's and don'ts, their 30-day goals, their 60-day goals, their 90-day goals, their assigned mentor, their assigned confidant, and their written role description, all of which they get by 8.30 a.m. on day one. And that is the new person checklist, right? And, and the, it, you can drill down into all of that, and I'll teach you exactly how to do all of those things. But that's the only way to compete if you're an organization today, because, you know, HBR and all of those places, they'll tell us that 30 days after somebody starts their new job, they're looking for their next job. <laughs> so like when I started my first job, you know, back in the 1900s, they would say things to me like, you know, it's going to, and this was IBM. This wasn't like, you know, Joe screen doors. This was IBM. It's like, you know what, hang around, just follow a little bit. You know, you'll get the hang of things. You'll learn the ropes in six months or so. Well, Six months is two jobs away for that person who's starting today. So how do we compress that six months of experience into a half an hour, right? How do we get you everything you need to know? How do I get you to know who to bitch to a week from now when you realize that this is not the place you interviewed? <laughs> it's like, look, you're going to find out. And by the way, Team Dynamics tells us this is the second stage of team development, storming. When it happens, not if, when it happens, you're going to talk to Billy. And Billy will listen to you and he will understand because he's been there and he is your assigned confidant in the organization. He will not share anything you say with anyone else in the, in the building. You'd find him anyway, by the way, because we're, we know what we're doing. We just want you to find him now instead of three or four months from now because you're going to need him in a week. And we don't want you to be without him for those other seven weeks. And to your point, you don't have that person, you're much more likely to abandon ship because I know from personal experience, starting new jobs, I have been that person who's like ready to go after 30 days. And having worked closely in the onboarding world, I ran global onboarding for Tesla. I knew how critically important it was to get your work friends early. I mean, yes, you need to know all those things and you need to buy into and believe it and all that, but you can't underestimate the importance of having somebody who you could talk to, right? I mean, we're social creatures. So you talk about the 1900s, that's so last millennium. And so you are a self-described, I mean, you avoid adult responsibilities at all costs, right? And, and you have a track record. So I'm curious though, man, like where does that come from? And where does the kid at heart thing come from? And more importantly, how do you think it's helped you in business? The answer to the last part is I'm not certain that it has helped me in business. I think it's helped me in an uncountable number of other ways. And so I've never been a rule follower by any stretch of the imagination. And I think the world needs people who don't follow rules because generally speaking, those are the people who invent stuff that makes the world better. And then you need rule followers to make sure that we're doing established things properly. But I am smart and I've kind of like accepted that about myself, but I think of my smartness and the smartness in others, honestly, as more of a disability than an advantage, right? You know, there's one movie, the the man who knew too little, right? And it's a it's a comedy movie, and I forget, but it's like you know, there's it's a movie about this guy who's a dumbass. But generally speaking, 
knowing too much is what gets you killed in movies, right? It's like, oh my God, I figured out too many things too fast. And so I've always been pretty quick on the uptake. I've never wanted to waste time, right? I've never wanted to, I don't sit well in meetings. I don't want to help somebody who might be my boss do their thing. I want to do my thing or I want to do my kids' things. I've never wanted to have a job. I've never wanted to work for anybody, really. I've want, I see other people doing stuff and I want to help them. I'm really good at uh, trained now so that I'm good at like suggesting opportunities for improvement and helping people get farther down the track than maybe they would if they didn't have help from me or anybody, you know, anybody who could just like make observations and stuff. So I've never wanted to have a real job. I like to goof around. I was talking to somebody today. It was like, well, why is it that you can like, why can I always get you on the phone? He's like, hey man, are you busy? He's like, no, I'm not busy. It's like, what's talk? whatever, you know, it's like, I'm free for the rest of the day, whatever you want. I got to talk to Billy at 4.30. But like, other than that, I'm good. And the reason for it is, is that I don't want to work that hard. I want to do it intensively when I'm at it but I don't want to waste anything. And so I've spent my whole adult life, when I say avoiding adult responsibility, probably what I mean is I've spent my whole adult life figuring out ways to compress the amount of work I do into small amounts of time. And so when I do work, my hour is better than anybody else's 10 hours, right? So so rather than trying to do 400 hours a week like Elon does, I'm just going to do like 60 or 80, right? I'll work five or six or eight hours a week and that's plenty. And then the rest of the time I want to like goof around, build roller coasters, weld something, take a ride. Right. I love it, man. I love it. And the person who listens to this show and who connects with what you're saying, they believe they can change the world. They believe they could do something so significant that can make an impact on the planet in some meaningful way to where the world is different as a result of them being here. It's interesting, the paradox between you're not a rule follower, yet you studied aviation where you do need to be a rule follower, right? And so I want to tap in on one thing. I can tell this is a through line of your life, which is do the crazy thing. Do something a little bit crazy. It very much aligns with what we were just talking about, but talk a little bit about the crazy thing and why somebody who might be listening right now should listen to that little voice in their head that says, do that instead of like, no, don't do that. That's crazy. Yeah. So in case I start to ramble and you lose focus along the way, do the crazy thing that occurs to you. That's the takeaway. Like do the crazy thing. Twain says, we regret the things we didn't do, right? We regret deciding not to take an action. We almost never regret something we did, right? Think back I mean, I've got in my life two or three things that are like, oh man, I really wish I had not done that. But everything else, <laughs> I'm stoked, right? Everything else, bad decisions make good stories, bro. It's like, jump in. <laughs> the best story that I can think of is when, this was in 2014, my son Lyle was 11 years old. I think we just finished the summertime. We'd come back from a bunch of amusement park trips and roller coaster rides and all of that. And school was starting the next day. And Lyle says, you know, dad, I'm just sad. I wish we could just ride more roller coasters. I wish we had a roller coaster in the backyard. Wouldn't that be cool? And any dad would have either just let that go by as a rhetorical or maybe explain some of the important adult reasons why maybe not a roller coaster in the backyard. And no adult in the world would forgive a dad for declining to build a roller coaster in the backyard of the freaking house. Of course. So you could have zero consequence for not saying yes to that request. 
But I thought of a couple of things. I thought if I do this, and, th- and I thought of this in, in seconds, less than it takes me to describe it. I thought if I do this, if I give this to Lyle and I give this to myself, we're both going to take that for the rest, through the rest of our lives, right? We're going to have stories to tell. We're going to have experience together. Lyle is going to tell this to his kids. He's going to talk to his colleagues when he's off at work. This will be a thing for a really long time. And then the other reason, just as powerful a motivation for me, it would prove once and for all that I'm like a hundred times better of a dad than my brother, just straight. (laughs) So those two things, off we went. Built the thing, put the videos up on YouTube to show Grandma Lois and my big brother what fun we were having in progress of the build. Hackaday comes along and says, hey, this guy's building a roller coaster. And they like send it out. Guy Kawasaki, I think it was, he tweets He's like, man, there's this guy building a roller coaster. Good Morning America comes over to the house. They roll a satellite truck out into the yard and I'm on TV all of a sudden. And then I get excited and that's kind of cool. And, you know, I start to get some YouTube followers and then I build one in the front yard. And then the neighbors asked me to take that one down because enough's enough. And then I built one for the Maker Fair and then I built one for a friend of mine. And then Netflix came over to the house and said, hey, are you ever going to build another one? I was like, well, I am now. And then Netflix filmed me building a roller coaster. And then I've gotten clients, I've gotten business, I've met people because of the crazy roller coaster stuff. We're doing an NFT project right now that's called the Coaster Punks, where we're going to raise money to build a roller coaster and build a solar farm and build a bunch of educational TV about physics and science for teens and tweens. And all of those things, my entire life has come true since 2014 because I said yes to the craziest, stupidest question an 11-year-old could ever ask a grown-up. Imagine had you not done that. I cannot imagine how had I not done that because everything would be different. And honestly, I think probably not as awesome. I mean, the opportunities alone, the visibility, the awareness, as you've said, right? I mean, so much has happened as a result of you, instead of just tuning out or politely explaining why you can't do it, you said, you know what? That's not a bad idea. I'm going to do it. I mean, that's that's such a testament to being willing to do the crazy thing. Say yes to the crazy stuff, man. That's where the juice is, right? That's where real life happens. Real life. We don't watch videos on YouTube of somebody sitting at their desk and sorting paper clips or making sure all the pencils are sharp. We watch YouTube videos of stupid kids base jumping off the edges of cliffs. Because that's where life is. Life is in the base jumping. It's not in organizing nonsense on your desk. That's where it is. We respond to things that are beautiful and inspiring. And most of us, sadly, sadly, most of us leave it to YouTube for us to just kind of get a little sense of that from the outside looking in. But you can be in the middle of it, right? You can do these crazy things. And everybody has their own version of crazy. But I just please go find it. Yes, go find your crazy thing. So let's talk a little bit about how you've translated all the experience that you've had and all of the knowledge you've gained in order to help others. But to start that off, I want to start with somebody who I know you've learned a lot and applied a lot of the knowledge from this person, and that's Peter Drucker. How has he influenced you in your thinking most significantly? I often say, Peter, you know, it's like we're all, if we're Doing self-improvement stuff, we're all stealing from like Plato and Aristotle, right? They were the first like recorded philosophers in history and philosophy is the business of self-improvement, self-awareness. So everybody after Aristotle, Plato, maybe Kant, a couple of the others, like the OG 
philosophers, if you're in the self-help business, you're stealing from them. And that's fine and proper. If you're a writer, you're stealing from Shakespeare because he wrote all the awesome stuff. And maybe he wrote it and maybe he didn't, I don't know. But the name for it, original, foundational, fundamental, beautiful literature, prose, and poetry, Shakespeare. And so if you're a great writer, you better thank Shakespeare because you stole that from him. If you have anything to do with business, and if you wrote a business book, and I did, you stole it from Drucker. He's the father of modern management. He is the guy who figured out the principles of bringing a coaching methodology, a coaching mentality into the workplace. And as uh, Vince Lombardi says, coaching is simple. It's just getting your players to play better than they think they can. That's what Drucker did. Drucker figured out how to measure the things that matter. Drucker figured out how to set goals and hold people accountable to those things. And he figured out how to communicate effectively and frankly with teams of people. And so we're all stealing from Drucker. And so that's why he's my hero, because if I said he wasn't, I'd just be a liar. <laughs> well, no, and you always got to give credit where credit is due. And what I love about your book is you're unafraid to bring out the staples, right? You talk a lot about DISC. You talk about smart goals. You talk about foundational things that anyone in business must understand deeply to be able to do what they say they want to do, right? Which is a through line of your work is you help people do what they say they want to do in business. Is there anything that might surprise somebody from maybe hasn't studied Peter Drucker or maybe hasn't made that connection in the same way you have, which I think is fantastic, right? It's like, he's the Shakespeare of business management. What might surprise somebody or what might be a, a lesser known thing that Peter Drucker has has shared that has helped you or has helped other businesses? My experience in being a management consultant or a coach, depending on, right, if you're my age, you prefer to management consultant because coach is kind of weird or whatever. But but like what I've discovered is that I kind of have a joke and, and Drucker was, you know, Drucker was very tactical. Drucker was very methodical in his approach. And one of the things that I absolutely know about myself, which kind of takes us back to the beginning, is like, I'm really good at getting certifications. I'm good at passing tests. I don't really know every freaking thing, though, do I? And so if I go to a heating and air conditioning company, and they're my client, if I go into this heating and air conditioning company, I don't know anything about heating and air conditioning. I mean, I like know the physics of expansion and compression, and I understand how air conditioning coils work theoretically. I don't know how to run an air conditioning company. But what I do know, and it's not necessarily air conditioning, like any kind of business, what I do know, it's a cross between like diamond mining and, uh, and Wizard of Oz, right? I mean, all I have to do is get these suckers to click their heels three times and they'll realize they had the power all along. So my job is to go and dig through you, by the way, you have to move a ton of dirt to get one carat of diamond. My job is to dig through the dirt and find the diamonds that are already in the business. Because everybody that's there is there for a reason. They've been tracked there for some, you know, for, through some force or whatever. But like, we've got this group of people who share a common interest. They all work for the same company. They're all getting paid by the same person or whatever. And so like, now what we got to do is we got to just like sift a little bit. Let's figure out what are the most important things to do. One of the things that I try to do, and I learned this from Drucker, is let's not tell people what their job is. Let's ask people what their job is. What do you do? How do you know you're doing it well? What's the most important part of what you do? How do you help other people around you? Who's your customer, right? I have an internal customer, an external customer, and, and you can get 
the thing that I see a lot of consultants do, especially, honestly, inexperienced consultants, is they'll get wrapped up in the prettiness of a thought or an idea. It's like, well, what you really need is you really need like a really cool onboarding plan. And then we move on to the next really cool thing that you need, but we didn't stop to talk about what's so important about the onboarding plan, right? Everybody knows you need an agenda for a meeting, right? So what do you need for a meeting to be a meeting? An agenda. Everybody answers that question. Okay, well, you need one other thing. What's that? Do you know? You want to take a crack at what the other thing is you need for a meeting to be a meeting? The other thing that you need for a meeting to be a meeting is a intention and why you're having the meeting. So what's the goal or intention of that meeting? But we're going to call that the agenda, right? What's the intention? What's the goal? What do we want to get out of this? Absolutely. A conference room is a purpose-built environment, right? We're going to go in there. We're going to make decisions. We're going to do things that are important and have impact on us and the people outside, other employees in the company, people outside the company. It's a purpose-built environment where awesome things can occur, but also bad things can happen. We make bad choices in the conference room. It affects the employees. It affects the customers, depending on whether or not we're building, I don't know, 737 MAX airplanes. It could even kill people if we make (laughs) bad decisions in a conference room, right? It's not trivial. Let's think of other purpose-built environments. Let's think of the swimming pool at the hotel. When you get to the swimming pool at the hotel, there's that almost impossible to operate gate. It's baffling. It seems only children can work the thing. Right when you get to the gate, what else do you see before you get into the before you enter the swimming pool? Right when you walk down the stairs at the subway, what do you see as you're entering the subway? Right when you get about to go through TSA, you'll see these things in all of these places. Metal detector? <laughs> so like let's go back to the swimming pool. You're gonna see a sign. It's gonna say there's no lifeguard on duty, no glass around the pool. Right? We close at 10. Oh, ground rules. That's right. Ground rules. Yes, yes, yes. Ground rules. I know. Yes, I do remember you talking about that. And I love your ground rules, by the way. I I often share most of the ones you share, but go ahead. Yeah, this is a great, great topic. And one of my favorite examples is like, imagine imagine a Warriors basketball game with no ground rules, right? I mean, it's not a sustainable business all of a sudden because you've got these gigantic, super strong, super focused, super talented people who will do anything to win. And they go right up to, but not over the boundary of the rules. You take away the rules Guys are going to die out there just straight up every day. And that ruins the business because we, we don't have an unlimited supply of basketball players. They're incredibly rare. So ground rules are built to make sure we get what we came for, to make sure nobody gets hurt, and to make sure that there's focus. And so why are my clients the only businesses that have ground rules posted on the walls of conference rooms, right? Confidentiality. Everyone participates. Turn off your phones. These are some of the ground rules. No side conversation. Yeah, no sidebars, because if you have sidebars, you're not here and everyone participates. No no checking email. If you need to check email, then the meeting's not worth your time. Yeah, (laughs) if you're here, you're here. And even if it doesn't directly involve you, we need your best thinking. We need you here. Otherwise, you'd be back in your office. And important things can't be discussed comfortably. We tee that up in the ground rules at the beginning of the meeting, because if you say something that I think is bullshit, I'm going to call bullshit because it's one of the rules that are posted on the wall. We don't cotton to that around here, and we're ready to be uncomfortable. We're prepared to be uncomfortable, just like we would be uncomfortable if we went to the gym. Your personal trainer keeps your heart rate at 62 beats a minute the whole session. You're going to fire your trainer because they did not do their job which is to make you work hard. I love all of that, man. We could geek out on that for days. And it's so important and it's often overlooked. 
in a minute, we'll talk about time, but just to talk about it briefly, a meeting just because it's scheduled a certain amount of time doesn't even it needs to take that amount of time. I mean, Elon will be the first to tell you if you're no longer needed in that meeting, you leave. And if you're organizing the meeting and the meeting's done, you call that meeting done. It could be 11 minutes in. This is why I don't even like 30 minute an hour meeting. It's like why it's an arbitrary number. Why have we made that the official times for meetings? So uh, I do want to talk about time management, but before we do, there is something else that I want to I want to talk about, which is this this quote that I got from you. And I don't know if, if it's something that's borrowed or this is your original, but you say business problems are like quicksand. The more you struggle, the faster you sink. What do you mean by that? I'll go back to like my college days, you know, like where where we're like learning everything new. We're learning and like relationships in particular, right? You've got a girlfriend, you have a fight, it's the end of the world. You're not gonna, you're gonna die without her, but you can't live. You know, all of this sort of stuff. So what we decide is like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're having this problem in our relationship. We're going to get in a room and we're going to stay in that room. And we're going to talk about this until we get it solved. We're not going to stop. We're just going to keep on working on solving this problem until we're happy with each other again. We're going to get so close and so intense with each other. And it's just like, it sounds awful, right? It's like, and what usually happens, I mean, everybody, all human brains are just like problem solving machines. It's what we do. We can't help it. When I'm online at the car wash, I'll look at my clock and I'll see what time it is and I'll figure out about how much time it takes for the next car to go through. And then I'll look over and say it's like $12.95 for the car wash and then 18 for the thing. So probably the median was probably 13 or $14 uh, one every minute. There's this many minutes in a day. Like while I'm sitting around, I'll just like think up problems and I'll just like solve for gross annual revenue for the car wash. And I'll get, and I'll do that just cause it's, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm geeky like that. Right. How many, how many planes can land on the thing? How many cars go by during the time I'm talking with Billy? We solve problems whether we want to or not. The trick is to put that machinery, to use that capacity in a way that's productive. So if I have a big business problem, it's like, how do I solve for whatever? How do I get people to buy this? How do I get Joe to you know, sign up for the whatever it is? If I have a particular big problem, what I'll do is I'll ask the question to myself out loud over and over again, and then I'll go to the gym, or then I'll go ride my bike, or then I'll go watch an episode of 30 Rock. I'll load the problem into the problem solver and then I will walk away just the same way I'd walk away from the washing machine. If you sit and watch the washing machine, it's awful, right? Don't watch. It doesn't need you. And so a lot of times your brain doesn't need you to solve problems, right? And if you can kind of figure out a way to sort of separate you from your brain, your brain is one of the tools. So let's give it some stuff to do and then go about minding our own business. Let's try not to micromanage our brain any more than we would micromanage an employee. So, okay, brain, I need you to figure out how we're going to get people to sign up for this. And while you're doing that, I'm going to go weld something, <laughs> right? And so I'll go build a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go build a roller coaster. And by the way, when you're building a roller coaster, you're going to create some problems for yourself. And then you go to sleep and you think about it. You talk to Liz about it. And then it's just like, oh. You'll have these, that's what epiphanies are. Epiphanies are when the, you know, the spin cycle is done in your brain. It's like, oh, here. And your brain just says, here, here's the thing you asked me to work on. You just got to get intentional about that. You've got to, you've got to intentionally give your brain problems to solve and then leave it the F alone so that it can solve them. Well, the genesis of this show came about because a guy named David Rock came to speak at Tesla and he studies neurology and he's, 
really at the forefront of understanding how and why we make the decisions we make and operate in the way we do. And he he says the prefrontal cortex is kind of like two quarters in your pocket, 50 cents. And the rest of your brain is like, size-wise, it's the entire US economy. But yet the prefrontal cortex, that's solving all your problems. Problem is, is we're constantly feeding it, feeding it, feeding it. We're watching it, hoping it's going to do its thing. It's like a watched pot never boils. Same thing, right? Unless we go take a run, take a shower, go to the bathroom, do something that's not problem solving, we're not giving our prefrontal cortex the space, the time it needs to do its work. The mind does amazing things. We don't constantly need to be full court pressing it to do the thing it's supposed to do. Yeah, I appreciate the science behind it because I'm like a Philistine at best. It helps me to, what you just said, helps me to understand a little bit more about what I would very loosely term as like my process. <laughs> I'm not even sure I would do that. <laughs> but because a whole lot of what I do looks to me and everybody else like just goofing around. Hey, what are you doing? It's like, ah, I'm just rearranging all the furniture in my office. Why? It's, like, it's been this way for days. Or, or I'm going over to the thing. Or, and I do a lot of goofing around. Then the epiphany, the spin cycle will finish. You know, the prefrontal cortex will say, oh, by the way, thanks for leaving me alone for a few minutes. Here's this. I'm like, oh, and then I know how to get shit done. But the goofing around part, it's crucial. I don't understand people who don't have time for things. I fail to understand. I love it, man. It, you know, it's so funny too, because another, another paradox in your life is, here's a guy, you're admitting that you're not afraid to just do something to have some fun, to take a break, to do that. Yet you're also somebody that is ruthless about time management or, and, and you help teach people time management, right? And so time management is such a vast thing. You and I are very aligned in our mindset about like, hey, unless I'm absolutely extraordinary at it, I need to delegate, automate. I need to eliminate. I need to do something to take it off my plate so that I can do the thing that I'm most gifted at doing that's in my zone of genius. And so I think that's a, a great through line. But I want to talk about time management in a different way for a minute. And I just want to say, where do people get it wrong? I mean, obviously, that's one area where they're just doing everything themselves. But maybe what's something about time management that isn't as talked about as much that you believe and that you advocate for that you know we don't hear all the time? The best chance you have of writing a book that's going to sell well is to sell a time management book, right? It's like writing a baby book or or selling baby products. There's always a new batch of people every you know every unit of time. There's gonna who's gonna like be ready for more of this. I've never met him, and I would love to, but I like talk shit about Tim Ferriss all the time because like I just promise you the four hour work week. Tim Ferriss works way more than four hours a week, and he always has, and he always will, and that makes that title bullshit, right? Now. And because you can't not do that. And so when I think about time management, I try not to think about, you know, let's figure out the amount of time that I'm spending on these things. And then I'll write this down and I'll count the minutes for that. Because what I know about everybody, me most of all, is that I'm going to keep doing the things I do, right? That's like, that's like the foundation of, of actuarial tables, right? Self-awareness. Yeah. <laughs> so people, you know, it's like, oh, you can change. It's like, eh, you know, man, people are kind of, you know, they're kind of what they are. And so, but what we can do is, you know, so we, changing behaviors is hard every once in a while. And this is why like intensive conversations and, you know, retreats and events and sweat lodges and these kinds of things are, are really important. What changes behaviors and what changes one's perspective are tectonic level events. 
So January 12th, 2012, 7.35 p.m., Salt Lake City Airport. It was called the Crown Room at the time. It's called the Sky Club now. I got a text from my big sister letting me know that my little sister had just died of cancer. I knew my little sister was going to die of cancer for a couple of years before I got that text. A few days before, my brother sent me a text and says, hey, if you're going to do something, you better do it now because I think it's time. And I said, okay, cool. I'm just going to run and do this one quick meeting and then I'm going to go see Vivian. And she died when I was on my way back from that meeting. I will never get that back. And it was at that moment that a number of things happened. The most important of which was, and I had known it all along. I had read it all along. It made sense to me intellectually and everything. But like what I knew was that not only am I going to die someday, I'm going to absolutely run out of time. Everybody around me is going to die someday and I'm going to lose people along the way. So what happened in that moment was the best thing that I could do to honor Vivian was to never, ever, ever waste another single second doing anything that wasn't the absolute best thing I could be doing. And that includes work and that includes people and that includes everything. And I tell that story when I do workshops, I tell that story when I do keynotes and then I stop and I say, and listen, by the way, you guys are all going to die too. And everybody you know is all going to die too. And I'm okay. I got, you know, it's like, it's part of me now. And it's like, sucks that Vivian died and I get it. And I'm not here to make everybody feel sorry for me, but let me, but do me this favor. If you've got something better to do than listen to me yammer on about shit like this, please get up and walk out of this building right now. I will give you back your money. If you go and do something that's better for you to do than this right now, I will absolutely give you back your money and I will feel happy that I saved you from wasting your time. But that's like the best that I can do really for somebody. I mean, I can teach you how to get shit done faster. I can teach you how to delegate. We can all, you know, there's like a million people that can do that sort of thing. But what I want is for me, most of all, and everybody around me, second, most of all, to know that if we're talking, you're the most important thing that I could possibly be doing right now. And whatever I'm doing is the most important thing that I could possibly be doing right now. And if at any second it stops being the most important thing, get the fuck up and walk the fuck out and go use your time because it's going to go away and it's the only thing you can't get more of. Brother, first of all, thank you. I recently lost my sister. She's eight years older than me. And same story though. I mean, obviously different circumstances. Uh, She died of a stroke. She had a stroke a few months earlier. I had my opportunity to go see her. I told her I was going to go see her. I didn't go see her. And like you, I remember exactly where I was when I got that phone call from her daughter. And I didn't even need to pick up the phone. I knew what that phone call was. Yeah, you felt it before, before the phone rang, you felt it. Yeah, exactly. So, so thank you for sharing. And I think that is a, a powerful message on, on the impact that we have on ourselves and how we value our time and how we think about our time. Speaking of time, we have a few minutes left. I want to talk about a couple other things before we wrap up. One is your love of three things. I also love three things. And so you talk in your book about key metrics, goals, and you also talk about this important thing called problem solving, which as a a former Tesla employee, problem solving is near and dear to my heart. 
We won't get into key metrics that much, but but I, I also really do value immensely the importance. And you break it down, profit and loss, productivity, quality assurance, cash flow, things of that nature. So go check out Will's book. If you, if you haven't already read it, definitely go check it out. Goal Boss is fantastic. And I'll tell you this, I'm deeply fascinated about problem solving more than anything. So let's zero in on that, specifically NASA, right? So Elon, obviously SpaceX. So there's a tie in there, but how does NASA solve problems and why should we be thinking more like them? Well, NASA solves problems in the way that they solve problems because the stakes are incredibly high, right? One person makes one mistake with one bolt 10 years before a rocket leaves the launch pad and people die. And, and NASA knows this, right? I've spoken to NASA engineers. I'm like a, I'm a space buff and they understand better than I'm going to say most humans, NASA people understand so much how important it is to get it right and how important it is to get it right the first time. Because when it goes wrong, as we know, it's tens or hundreds of thousands of miles away. You know, you're not going to get a solution delivered to you. The way I've been taught problem solving is generally speaking, if you think about a, a regular meeting, there's like a brainstorming. It's like, hey, I've got this problem. Really? One person will ask, what's your problem? Oh, well, it's this. And the, oh, well, tell me about that. Another person asks, and then and then you'll go back. And so there's this serial communication, right? That happens. And so a question from somebody in the room, an answer from the person who has the problem, another question from somebody in the room, an answer that has a problem, a suggestion on how to solve the thing, uh, a response from the person who has a problem, another suggestion related to the first suggestion, blah, blah, blah. There's all this serial conversation and you end up with kind of a, an orbital or a, a random walk sort of a look if you were to graph this conversation out. It's like from me to one person, boom, boom, back to me, you know, all, and it's chaos. Basically, it's an orbital, right? So what we've done is we've developed this methodology, also stolen from somebody who's not me, called team problem solving. And what we've figured out a way to do is we figured out a way to, to batch process the events that occur in any problem solving or brainstorming session. And what happens is you've got a type of event that occurs and there are, uh, well, let's count them. There's the background and facts, right? And so that's like, that's how I tee it up. It's like, here's the background. Once upon a time, I had this issue and these are the facts as they sit on the ground right now. In my experience, it takes one minute, maybe two minutes for the person with the problem to tee up that problem and tell it to the whole group. And then if the team in the room can resist the urge to preface every question or statement with a story of their own, if we can be like Mr. Wolf in Pulp Fiction, if I'm terse with you, it's because time is short. So we do background and facts, and that's like one minute. And then we have clarifying questions from the team. And so what we do is we ask closed-ended questions. How long have you had this problem? How much does it cost you? When have you blah, blah. And we always ask questions about the past. We don't, have you tried this solution? That's not one of the questions. We want to ask questions and stay in the problem for a couple of minutes and let the team get as much clarification as they possibly can in two minutes. And then when that two minutes is up, we're done. We're not just going to like keep beating it to death because time is the only thing you can't get more of. Then the next step takes five minutes and it's called suggested action steps. And this is where we literally go around the room and each person in the room suggests something for the person with the problem to do. Hire an assistant, use a bigger wrench, See if you can reduce the size of the novels, nozzles by blah, blah, blah. You know, cool the fuel to, you know, whatever the, whatever the suggestions are. And as everybody in the room, and again, 
well, I had a problem like that. So no, we're not interested in you. This is all about exactly telling the person what to do. And then the person with the problem writes down all of the suggested action steps. And we go around the room until five minutes expires or until we're all out of suggestions. And then for the last two minutes, we call that stop and jot. For the last two minutes, the person with the problem goes through the list of suggestions and say, okay, I'm going to do this one and I'll do it by April 15th. I'm not going to do this one. I'm going to do this one and I'll start doing that by May 2nd. I'm going to do this one and I'm going to start doing that tomorrow because that's like really makes a lot of sense. I'm not going to do this one. Oh, and I thought of one of my own. I'm going to do this one and I'm going to start doing that by March 30th. And then we have a succinct, crisp set of goals that the person with the problem can attack without giving the problem away to somebody else. And that's one of the rules of team problem solving is like, you can bring your problem to this group, but when you leave, you're taking it with you, right? You don't get to <laughs> give this problem to somebody else. I love it. And so what we've done is we've done the exact same thing that's just like a natural problem solving questions, answers, suggestions for way to solve stuff. But what we've done is we've created a checklist, right? So background and facts, clarifying questions, suggested action steps, stop and jot. It's a four item checklist and it's timed. It's a timed event. And we've batch processed. We get all of the background and facts first. We get all of the clarifying questions second. We get all of the suggested action steps third. We get all of the, okay, I'm going to do this. We get all of the now what last. And we save all of that back and forth time. And it's amazing how quickly you can solve a problem. Well, how quickly the answer is 10 minutes. And, And any organization that's not doing this is blowing away massive, massive amounts of time. Brilliant. I love frameworks. So thank you for sharing that. And I think anyone wanting to solve problems should rewind, play again, rewind and play again, and make sure that you embed that into your brain as a great methodology to solve challenging problems. So as we bring it home here, I'm going to give you, I'm going to tee you up here. First of all, goldboss.com. Go check out Will on YouTube, some amazing videos. Go check out all of his socials. Go check him out on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Insta. But also, look, here's a guy who's doing more and more things every single day to help people. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. And I want you to talk a little bit about, as you close out here, I also love Hack My Van. I think that's another thing you got working on. So all sorts of fun things and your roller coasters. I mean, I could spend hours talking about all the stuff you're working about, but What is a eulogy goal and where else can people find you? The eulogy goal happened one day when I was, I was working with a team that I, that I work with on a pretty regular basis. And we were all like a little out of sorts that day. And so, you know, you know, we have our good days, we have our bad days. So I was just kind of like pissed off at everybody. I wasn't like getting the best out of everybody. I'm like, all right, so stop everything. And we were at the goals section of a goal boss meeting. And and I was like, all right, stop everything. Let's play a game. You're all going to die in 30 days. And then they're like, what? I was like, yeah, well, I'm a little pissed off at you. So I'm imagining that right now, but let's go with it, right? You're all going to die in 30 days. Your funeral is going to be in 31 days. Now, the only thing, and all your friends are going to gather and your family's going to be there and your husbands and wives and partners are going to be there crying and your kids, if you have kids, it's going to be a sad sad day, but also a celebration of your life. But it's going to be your funeral and it happens in 31 days because you're going to die in 30 days because that's how I feel right now. And so hopefully we can get through it. But here's the other thing. At your funeral, when everyone you've ever known has gathered to celebrate your life, all we're going to talk about 
is what you've accomplished in the last, in the next 30 days. Between now and 30 days from now when you die, all we're going to remember is what you got done in the next 30 days. And that's all we're going to talk about. And that's going to be what your eulogy is about. And just one other rule, by the way, you're not allowed to quit your job. You have to keep coming to work. So let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> what kind of goals are you going to set? And I asked, you know, Tim, it's like, what kind of goals are you going to set? And everybody was quiet. They're like, damn. And, uh, you know, cause I like did the Will Pemble thing and I got the, and I was like, Tim, what kind of goals are you going to set? And Tim, he's quiet for a second. And he's like, he's like thinking about this, he's like, damn. And he looks up at me, he goes like, awesome goals. And I'm like, yes, awesome goals. Now, let me ask you idiots this. Why would you set anything but an awesome goal ever? Because you very well might die in 30 days. What makes you think you've got 30 days? And why would your decisions be anything but what you'd want to be remembered for forever? The stuff I do today, I want to be remembered for forever. And that's a eulogy goal. Powerful. Will, thank you so much for being here and thank you so much for your time. I know it is, as you say often, and I agree with, it is the only thing we can't get back. It is our most precious resource and we need to treat it as such. So I appreciate you spending this time with us today. If somebody wants more Will in their life, if they want to allow um, your brilliance to shine on them, how can they uh, do that? If they're an entrepreneur, a business owner, a leader, somebody that wants to be able to use your, your knowledge and help them get the thing that they say they want to get, how can they go about finding you? The short, easy answer to the question is you can go get the Goal Boss book, right? If you go to Amazon and you type Goal Boss, you'll find the book, get the book, read the book. The real me at the moment, if you could call it that, has found its way into this project that we've called the Coaster Punks Project. And you can go to coasterpunks.com and check this out. We've figured out this kooky thing where we want to build the most sophisticated indoor thrill ride roller coaster that's ever been created by private citizens. I've got a warehouse. So we've got this 3,000 square foot warehouse, 25 feet high. It's going to be like this dark space mountain kind of ride. I love it. We're going to fund it with an NFT. So you can buy a Coaster Punks NFT to help support the project. And then part of the NFT will be you get to come and ride the ride and there'll be meetups. And so you'll get to put your hands on this thing. You know, Carrie Byron from Mythbusters is one of the gangs. She's helping us and, and encouraging us along the way. We're also part of this project, we're going to build a solar farm that will generate enough electricity to uh, offset every bit of electricity that we consume, building the project, making the steel, running the coaster, and also running the NFT part of the thing. And when you're using a super efficient blockchain for that, that's a whole other conversation. And then the other thing that we're doing is we're building this educational TV series. We're going to build, uh, we're going to hiring an award-winning production company called Explore Media, and they're going to create an eight episode uh, STEM learning series to teach kids about uh, what I say in my roller coaster videos, physics, family, and fun. We're going to, we're going to make a, a, a series for teens and tweens and the big goal of that whole project is to help humanity become sustainable and interplanetary. That's what we want to do. So if you want to like get involved directly with me right now, that's what I'm doing for the next year is I'm, <laughs> I'm goofing around building a roller coaster for the, for the coaster punks. I am not surprised one bit. I do encourage people to go check that out. And if you didn't learn anything from this episode, I hope you took away the message and the importance of not being afraid 
to do the crazy thing. Will Pimble, thank you for being on Inside Out. Thank you, Billy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.